Morning, everyone. Desmond, as ever, thank you for, uh, for leading our, our service through uh, this point and uh, to our musicians and, and Kev on the back doing your little bit of tech stuff. It's great to, uh, to have all your support. Um, as you're, you're starting a new uh, series in, in this incredible book of Acts, uh, I want to uh, do something I don't normally do, something I, I would never uh, normally start a sermon in this way, but I want to recommend a, um, a book to you. It is a book written by uh, Dr. David Gooding. David Gooding is a um, he's the emeritus professor of Greek uh, theology in the New Testament in Queen's University in Belfast. Uh, he is also mentor to Professor Lennox. But please don't let the uh, academic author and nature of this book put you off. It's an incredible book uh, that's really really blessed me and helped me as I've um, as I've been preparing for this morning. It's also available for free, and uh, the a PDF version of this, electronic version of this, is free. And I have a little gift for you. Uh, at the end uh, to make use of uh, this morning. So thank you for that. So we're going to get this, this incredible book then, the book of Acts. It's really, it is a book that starts uh, with the beginning of the church, the beginning of this New Testament church, this New Testament incredible thing that God has started where he was uniting people uh, together. So our passage for this morning is Acts chapter 1. Uh, verses 12 to 26. I have it on screen, but obviously please feel free to to follow along in your own Bibles, and I'll give you uh, a few moments uh, to to find those. But Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. So our passage starts like this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. A Sabbath, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, and together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted a share in his ministry. You see, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Arkadema, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all times, that the Lord Jesus went in and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must be witnesses to his resurrection. You see, and then they put forward two Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these you have chosen. You have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Jesus rather watched Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's just pray before we get into uh, into God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for 
what being able to share together as we've been thinking about your son's death on the cross. Lord, we thank you that you gave us a very simple remembrance feast, bread and wine. Lord, and we were instructed to do this in remembrance of you. And Lord, as we've done that now, and as we look at your word, we ask that we will be challenged by it afresh this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this whole book of Acts then, this uh, Acts of the Apostles, really it is the preeminence of the fact that Jesus will build his church and the, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But this is all about this one thing of Jesus building his church. And our, our verses this morning come as the disciples are, are anticipating that church. They're, they're there waiting right on the bordering, right on the cusp of this whole new movement starting. You see, Jesus has only been gone for around seven or so weeks. His his promise of sending a helper is still ringing in their ears. These men who would go on to change the world firstly have to obey Jesus' commandment, and they do so by returning to Jerusalem. You see, the the people that met in the upper room We're told about 120 or so disciples, Jesus' mother, his other family members, the apostles, the ordinary people, a real eclectic mix of people, yet they have one focus. Their one aim was to praise the name of Jesus. It's certainly starting to sound like a church should, isn't it? You see, what was abundantly clear, though, that as we look through our text this morning, was that the gathering in the upper room was that they worshipped Jesus in unity they were all standing shoulder to shoulder they stood there with one common purpose they were one in christ they stood together united as one body they met in the upper room which could well have been the same upper room that jesus and his disciples uh, shared the last supper in it could have been in fact uh, that same room which means that if it was the same room that same place where Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, was where the early church was born. So this 120 or so strong group of people that had, that had formed what was to become the church, they were not only praising God, but they were also praying to God. You see, the early church, this group of people as they gathered together, were already focused on prayer, and how integral that prayer was for their existence. And to be frank, it should be an integral part of every church today. Yet the question stands, why is a prayer meeting, or times when you gather to get together to pray, considered by many Christians to be unimportant, and it's often the least attended gathering of a local church? I don't know, I can't speak for this church, but unfortunately I can certainly speak for my own. How is... This fundamental thing that we are to do as Christians, not only individually, but corporately, to gather together to pray, becomes so unimportant. I will leave you to answer that question. I have my own ideas, but this is not the time nor the place to share them. You see, the church that started with 120 people, it's gone global. It's gone viral, if you want to use that sort of statement. It's gone wide, worldwide to all four corners of our round earth. It's always, always baffled me, but there we are. It's gone everywhere. There are hardly any nations on earth by which now there is not a church or a gathering of people. And it all started in one room. 
You see, remember I said about the importance of prayer and how the, the prayer meeting has somehow become some form of unimportance. Well, here is unequivocal proof that if you think like that, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. Prayer, as we're about to see, is vital. There is nobody, there is no Christian in this room who will not want to see a revival take place in Torbay, in Devon, in the UK, or further afield. There is no one. You see, our God is able to turn towns, cities, countries, even continents around. And we can be part of that. But we need to be a people who pray and seek God's face. His word reminds us time and time again that if my people who were called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It all starts with us praying and seeking God. Unequivocal proof that prayer is vital. If we want to do anything for God, the first thing we must do is get on our knees and pray to him. Just like these men did in the upper room. Just like these gatherings of people did together in the upper room. You see, the disciples of Jesus were not only uh, united by prayer and worship, but they were united by the fact that these things go hand in hand. The verse 14 says, with one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. You see, the lesson for all of us is this, that when we get together to pray, we need to be a people who are united as the disciples. We also need to ask a fairly major question. How do we approach God? How do we approach God in prayer? Do we really get who God is? Do we really understand? Do we really come together when we realise just who God is? is you see we are told in hebrews 11 what god is looking for when we approach him for whoever would draw near to god must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him see for whoever would draw near to god must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him it's about coming together And drawing near to God. A. Believing he is who he is. B. Believing he can do exactly what he says he can do. And B. He will reward. Or rather C. He will reward those who seek him. The difficulty for us. Is are we willing to listen to his reward? Are we willing to listen to his answer? We are perfectly happy with yes. You can have that. Oh wonderful. That's great. We can go off and do whatever we jolly well feel like. We can live with no. Because it gives us definition. It gives us, okay, I'm going to do that and something else. The thing that we struggle with, and I say this personally, the thing that I struggle with, is that four-letter word, wait. We have to be reminded there is no delay in God's timing. As a man who works on the railway, I understand all about delay, Okay. But there is no delay in God's timing. So there will be times that when we come together to pray, that when we draw near to God in prayer, that when we come before him and we seek his face, there may be a time when he says, wait. 
Des and I were talking in the, when we were back praying this morning about how the faithfulness of God over, over many years and how we can look back in hindsight with what the Lord has done. And we can look back and we see how God has moved things and managed things into place. There are loads of you here that have combined hundreds of years of experience of how God has brought together everything for one purpose. And yet it all starts with the fact that you are willing to get down on your knees and pray. You see, these examples that these disciples set should stand every time we meet together to pray, irrespective of the venue or irrespective of the circumstance. There needs to be, when we pray, when we get together as a a group of people, corporately, we come together to pray, we need to do so in unity. We're all part of the body of Christ, if you're a Christian here this morning, are we not? We are all members of that one body. There is not one of us that can say to somebody else in this church, I don't need you. Scripture reminds us that the hand cannot say to the foot, you're a waste of space. There is not... There's no point in it. We come together and we need to be united as God's people. So let me come back to this uh, incredible passage that we've got. In verse uh, 15, uh, when you come to verse 15, the, the passage changes, the tone changes. The, uh, what, what Luke is writing as, a, as an eyewitness account to this uh, meeting together changes. And Peter stands up. He's now the apparent leader uh, of the group. And he stands up to address this 119 strong group of people. They needed a leader. And Peter was that man. He had the confidence, the God-given confidence to stand and to speak. He was following God's leading. I can imagine Peter standing up. And the room quietening. And everybody noticing that Peter had stood up to say something. And he starts, brothers gets everyone's attention he speaks with clarity and with power and he speaks the truth we have a a group of people now that from this text we can see that they are united in the trust of their leadership that is another thing that is key in the church to have a people united in the trust of their leadership these people that god has put an authority over us to lead our churches whoever that may be and however that looks like You see, but we need as Christians to pray for our leaders in our churches and to trust that they are following God's command. See, Peter stands and he's going to deal with the business of a replacement for Judas. And he immediately starts with scripture. With Peter, there's no, oh, this is a newfangled idea that I've dreamt up over my breakfast this morning. Peter immediately starts with scripture. He explains that the prophecy had to be fulfilled. That prophecy was about betrayal. You see, David wrote uh, most of the Psalms. And he prophesied about the betrayal of Judas. And that this was the prophecy that was filled because of it. You see, Jesus, uh, rather Judas, his betrayal led to the arrest of Jesus. The Jewish chief priests arrested him. Pilate, under pressure, had him crucified. Jesus' cross, Jesus's cross rather, stands as a beacon on a hill. Every time we talk about it, it shows how just how far the world has dissipated God and his word. You see, John 1 verse 10 and 11 paints this that horrible picture of just what our 
uh, opinion was on Jesus and just what, uh, how we treated him, how the world treated him when he came together. And it says this, he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You see, this might be a completely new thing for you this morning. But to realise this, the world has an owner. Its owner is God. We are just tenants. But we are not content with being tenants. Tenants have to pay dues. Rent. In this case, our dues are dues of love, obedience, devotion and service to God. Yet for many people around the world this morning, that is too much to ask. You see, rather we live as if there is no owner. Or worse, we would rather live that we were the owner. We sin against God on a a daily, hourly, even minutely basis. And this picture gets worse when we realise we certainly have no love for Jesus, the owner's son. The son for whom the world was made. And yet John 1, in that same chapter, goes on to say, Yet all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be the children of of God we've remembered how he did that this morning we remembered in the bread and the wine the fact that Jesus died on the cross Judas betrayed Jesus but that wasn't the reason that Jesus died on the cross he died to make us right before God Jesus would have died on the cross whether Judas betrayed him or not It was bigger than what Judas was doing. It was bigger than what the disciples were doing. It was bigger than what the Jewish Pharisees were doing. It was bigger than the Roman Empire of that time. It was God showing his mercy and his grace that by allowing Jesus to die the death that was rightly ours. Do you believe that this morning? Is that you sitting here this morning having a realisation of that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross? You see, that's what unites Christians. We are children of God. We are all part of God's family. If you're not part of that family this morning, then realise that Jesus died for your sin, and he died to restore your relationship to God. You see, God's mercy and grace will one day be exhausted, and then will come judgment. You see, Judas met, as we read, an untimely demise after uh, receiving his reward for betraying Jesus. He was killed in his own field, and he was judged for his actions. It was happened that that he was buried in that field that he so desperately wanted, and it was turned into a cemetery. You see, what happened to Judas was judgment. Judas was judged for what he did, and we will all one day be judged for what we have done. We will judge for what we have done, we will judge for what we were about to do, and we will judge for what we will do today. You see, Peter carries on speaking. Let's go back to Peter's, uh, Peter's message. And he announced that Judas needs to be replaced. And replaced not because of his betrayal, but rather because of his, dire- his defection. Peter goes on to say that the man who was going to replace Judas had to have two things. One, He must have accompanied Jesus' disciples from the beginning. Someone who has seen what the disciples have seen. He has heard what the disciples have heard. And secondly, he must have been an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. So we've got a very narrow field to choose from. They throw lots 
for uh, the next disciples. It might seem a bit odd and probably not current practice to bring dice to a prayer meeting, but hey, hope that's the way they did it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. There was no direct leading from God for every single person in that room. Peter was anointed. Peter was given the leading of God to stand up and speak. Everybody else had not received the Holy Spirit of God yet. It hadn't come. So that was the way that they did what they did. You see, that was the custom of their day. So who are we to question? What was important, though, was that the disciples recognized that these, those things were vital. They were vital in making any decision. And that was they were united in the leading of God. The decision was made after three things were considered. A follower of God must trust his leading in all decisions. He must be willing to be united in listening for the master's voice. The disciples were also united in the fact that they, in what they had to do, they had to pray. They prayed and let God intervene in the election of the person to join the apostles. That person had to have a redeemed heart. Both of these men represented hearts that were transformed by the power of the resurrection in their life. It had to have been. They were eyewitnesses to it. Dead men do not get up and walk about. This had to have a major lasting effect on their lives. They had to acknowledge God's sovereign will. You see, all through the Bible, God has done his choosing. He chose Adam, Abram, Moses, all these men and women that he chose over the years to work his purposes out. He chooses kings and and leaders, and ultimately, he chooses us. You see, the apostles trusted God's sovereign will and choice more than they did their own. So this man, Matthias, he was chosen, and so begins a career as an apostle. An apostle responsible for taking the gospel to the people around the locality and eventually the globe. The disciples trusted God. They were united in their trust together to let God lead them to the right decision. And these men and women set as an example for us today. The combination of the correct use of scripture, of prayer, and a trust in God before making any decision. And as I draw our time to a close this morning, the stage is set for Pentecost. The apostles have seen Christ's ascension. And the apostolic group is now complete, ready to be his chosen witnesses. The only thing missing is the Holy Spirit. And that, as you will see in a few weeks, is not far away. We have an advantage sitting here this morning. For those of us that are Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Make the most of it. We have God himself residing in us. We are a chosen people, separate, separated for God's purpose. We need to be a people who are fervent in prayer, recognizing our redeemed hearts and bowing to God's sovereign will and grace that should affect our everyday living. The disciples were left with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We have been promised the Son, and one day that promise will be revealed. You see, Luke highlights the unity of that 120-strong group of people. He highlights that they were there all together The unity of their church as they prayed, worshipped and served together. The real challenge for us is that we do the same. And that we are a people united in Christ. Those 120 people or so were a minority. 
and the minority that were so united in Christ that God used them to change the world. Let me wake you up to a fact this morning. This church is a minority. Yet it has a minority, or rather it is a minority, that has the potential, just as these disciples did, to go out and change this local area. Are we willing to put our differences aside and be united in Christ? Are we willing to be united together as one people? You might already be, and I'm simply preaching to the converted. But if I am not, and that this church ignores the lesson of unity that the disciples demonstrate, Friends, I leave you with this. It's not shooting itself in the foot. It's shooting itself in the brain. And that's fatal. Let's pray. Father, as we have considered this incredible passage this morning, Lord, we realize that we must stand as one people. A people united in Christ. A people united by the blood of Jesus. A people united... For your one purpose, to go out and to share and to share and take our message with the world around us. Father, help us to put our differences aside. Father, help us to be a people that stand together, who pray together, who worship together, who serve together, who love you together. Lord, we ask and pray that we'll be a people who will stand together, united with one common purpose just as those people were in that upper room, to love and to serve and to worship Jesus. Lord, we come and give you thanks for your message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.